Good morning, church, and uh, hello to everyone watching us online. Last time I was on the pulpit, I spoke about the 11-11 sale. So I find it amusing that I'm preaching on the day of the 12-12 sale. I checked with pastor yesterday. He didn't deliberately put me on these days so that he can be shopping down there. Uh, next time, I'm also preaching on Boxing Day. Got sale, right? Anyway, not complaining. Uh, Year-end sales, uh, shopping, turkeys, cookies and milk, presents and parties, uh, encourage the Christmas holiday mood. I'm not sure if our Advent uh, sermon series has contributed to the festive mood, but too late to change anything, because we are on the second last sermon, and today we're looking at Old Testament... Right. Zephaniah may be an unfamiliar figure for many, so a few words about him. He's one of the 12 minor prophets of the Bible. Minor not because he's underage, but because his prophecy is shorter in length compared to the other major prophets. Uh, If you ask me, Daniel is okay, but Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel probably wrote too much. It can take a while to find Zephaniah if you flip your Bibles open now, because he only wrote two pages which tend to stick together. The prophet Zephaniah might have been a distant cousin of Josiah. That is, if his great-grandfather Hezekiah is the King Hezekiah of Judah, uh, who is the great-grandfather of Josiah. I believe he is, because otherwise, why would you trace your lineage back to your great-grandfather, if not to say you're the prince, right? Now, a final word about him. Zephaniah wrote his prophecy during the time when his cousin was king. The time of Josiah is a time when the northern kingdom of Israel has already fallen to Assyria. And Josiah has already been informed by the prophetess Holder that the destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah will certainly take place. But after he dies. And sure enough, in just a little over 20 years after his death, the Chaldeans laid siege to Jerusalem. Our passage is taken from the last chapter of Zephaniah's prophecy. It is a call to rejoice in the Lord. Here's a quick overview. It begins with an invitation to celebrate in verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Zephaniah is calling out to those who have remained faithful to God. That is, those who have remained faithful in spite of the widespread idolatry in Judah. And the reason for rejoicing is summarized in the next verse. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. So here, Zephaniah confirms what the other prophets have been saying. War and destruction are divine punishment for Judah's persistent sin and unrepentance. Nevertheless, God will not be angry forever. He will forgive them and eliminate the enemies who have caused them great harm. Furthermore, God will not abandon his faithful ones to evil. He will return to be among them one day. Then in verses 18 to 20, we will find a series of I will statements. These statements are from God and we'll look at them in detail later. But for now, suffice to say, these I will statements are actions God is going to take to restore Israel after punishing them. Since what God desires to do, he can surely accomplish. These I will statements are promises, God's promises to restore Israel. 
In this sermon, I want to focus on the need for promises of restoration. Then we'll look at the details of the promises, how they've been fulfilled in Israel's history, how they are fulfilled in Christ, and how all these things are relevant to the church today. Message for us today is rejoice in God's promises fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If you've read the prophecy of Zephaniah, you would know that our passage is the only bit of good news in a book which is largely bad news, which makes us wonder why the promises are there at all. In chapter 1, we can actually find another series of I will statements, but instead of promises, these are proclamations of judgment. For example, God says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place those who have turned back from following the Lord. At any of these I will judgments, Zephaniah commands, Be silent before the Lord. As if to say, don't protest against the judgments. Don't make excuses for yourselves. Hush. A stern command to shut up in the first chapter, and yet a cheerful command to sing and make some noise in the last chapter. What's he playing at? It seems that Zephaniah is deliberately setting up contrasts, the contrast between absolute judgment and comforting promises, the contrast between the fate of those who are unfaithful versus those who have remained faithful. That is, the unfaithful shall be silenced, but the faithful shall sing. By reading the text in context, we realise that our passage is not some random happy song, but a sharp contrast against proclamations of judgment. If you remember, when I preached on Jonah earlier in this series, I mentioned that proclamations of judgment are also offers of salvation. Jonah's prophecy did cause Nineveh to repent, and they were saved. However, this is not the case with Zephaniah and Judah. We've already heard that the destruction of Judah must take place. In other words, the offer of salvation to them has already expired. From now on, there is going to be war and chaos. Many people are going to die. The temple is going to be robbed and burned to the ground. The walls of Jerusalem shall collapse like Jenga blocks. Men, women and children will be forced into slavery in strange lands. God will keep himself hidden from his people. And in his absence, there is nothing good but evil. How do you think the people of Judah will respond to such a frightening prophecy? Obviously, the unfaithful ones would hear none of it. But what about those who are faithful? Those who would believe every word? If modern history is anything to go by, human beings are prone to drastic actions when doom and gloom loom over the horizon. On 9-11, when the World Trade Center was going up in flames, people started jumping out of windows. And in general, suicide rates tend to increase during economic recessions compared to periods of growth. Chances are, the people of Judah would also be tempted 
to throw themselves off the city walls. Or perhaps they will find ways to escape the country. They may even renounce God so that they don't have to believe in his judgments. Stick your head in the ground, as it were. Terrible things can happen when people are desperate to avoid terrible suffering. It becomes obvious then that God spoke promises of restoration to counterbalance the horrors of divine judgment. The promises are his loving mercy in the prophecy where there seems to be no mercy. For those who believe, these promises will fortify their hearts so that when judgment breaks out, they will courageously endure and not give up their lives recklessly. Those who believe will have hope and this hope is a vaccine against the contagious depression of exile. And because they have an expectation of a blessed future, they are motivated to wait. To wait for the return of the Lord, no matter how grim things may be. At the end of the day, the word of God does not end with death and despair. God's word always speaks life and hope. You know, Zephaniah's prophecy is kind of like the passenger information display system at bus stops. Certainly, it is not good news when the system says your bus has the longest waiting time out of all the buses calling on that stop. How unlucky. However, waiting time is made tolerable by the real-time information. When one by one the other buses start to appear at the time they are stated to arrive, you begin to believe that the system is trustworthy. As the time ticks down, you are comforted by your belief that your bus is getting closer. It is really coming soon. Indeed, you become so confident of your belief that when the display says that your bus is arriving, you stand up, gather all your barang barang, and walk to the boarding area, even though you still can't see the bus. Just as the information display nurtures faith and patience in waiting passengers, Zephaniah builds resilience in believers who are waiting for God. When the I will judgments take place, the remnant of Israel will become more confident that the I will promises at the back will also come true. They will be filled with hopeful expectation and look to the future with confidence. In fact, they will grow such confidence in the Lord that they will start living enthusiastically while waiting in the exile, they can sing as though God is already with them. While sitting in the ruins, they can rejoice as if the city has already been rebuilt. Zephaniah invites people to believe in God and sing because he himself has believed and is already singing. His faith is an encouragement for the church today. Living in the end times, we often hear of famines and earthquakes in various places, of nations rising against nations, kingdom against kingdom. When we read of the apocalyptic trials and tribulations in the book of Revelation, we pray to God, please let us not live to see that day. Yet Zephaniah teaches us that faithful people of God do not have to live in fear and trepidation of judgment. It is the unfaithful ones who should be worried but the faithful ones shall sing and rejoice. 
Because when we see these things happening, we know that the Lord is arriving. We know all his promises to us are coming true. The question is, are we among the faithful? When we hear and believe in Zephaniah's prophecy, we know that we are among the faithful ones. Indeed, we have already responded to Zephaniah's invitation to rejoice by virtue of the fact that we are here. The weekend worship service is like the cocktail reception before the heavenly wedding banquet. I know some of us here may not feel like celebrating God today. You walk into the sanctuary, Moses sing, Joy to the world, it's me. I'm not awake yet. Or maybe you've never been as enthusiastic about worship. That's okay. Allow the word of God to grow faith in you. Let your heart be filled with the joy and hope from his promises. About time we turn to those promises. I've grouped the similar I will statements together so that we only look at five. And I've decided to count them down because it's year and my, a lot of countdowns. Okay, so starting with promise number five. I will remove you from the temple. This comes from verse 18. Without going into the technicalities, this is my preferred translation. I will remove you from the temple so that you will no longer suffer reproach for its destruction. In this promise, we hear God explaining why he is sending the people into exile. Certainly, it is part of their punishment. But at the same time, God knows that if they remain in their war-stricken homelands, if they look upon the temple ruins day and night, they will be overwhelmed by grief and guilt. To protect them from excessive sorrow, God mercifully allows them to be taken away. And we know this promise came true in history. Now, Jesus did not fulfill this promise per se. Instead, this promise sets the stage for his first coming. The Israelites' departure from the temple may be seen as a sequel to humankind's departure from God's presence in the Garden of Eden. Because if you understand, the temple symbolizes God's presence. So if God removed Israel from the temple to reduce their suffering, couldn't it be that God also sent Adam and Eve away from his presence so that they need not look upon his holiness and be overwhelmed by shame and guilt? Could it be that God was protecting humankind from the burdensome stares from heavenly angels, the disapproving faces of the elders, and the fearsome looks of the four living creatures around the throne of God? Not sure. But whatever God's reasons, our exile made it necessary for God to come as men. Promise 4. I will deal with your enemies. Verse 19. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. God promises that he is going to deal with all the nations which has ever been cruel or unkind to Judah. This includes Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Cush, and Assyria, which are explicitly denounced in chapter 2. And true enough, as soon as Judah was destroyed, these nations were also swallowed up by Babylon. Does the church have enemies like that? The theologian Karl Barth observes that Old Testament Israel fought many bloody religious and political battles within and without. 
They were ever struggling to maintain their monotheistic faith and national independence. Curiously, the New Testament church is not involved in such things. Bad things is not because we are more humane or tolerant or peace-loving. He says it is because Christ has overcome all the principalities and powers of this world. And if I may add, Christ has also revealed to us the mystery hidden for ages. His kingdom is not of this world. Hence, we're not told to fight for land or establish kingdoms here. Nevertheless, Bart says our struggles are now predominantly spiritual. I understand him to mean that the battle for our allegiance and worship continues in our hearts and souls. The church is fighting spiritual enemies, idolatry, complacency, anxiety, covetousness, unrighteousness, unfruitfulness, unforgiveness, and spiritual things like that. But the promise remains true. Just as God dispensed his power to help Israel in their physical battles, Christ empowers us with his spiritual armor, truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. Moreover, he has already broken the power of sin and death on the cross. When he returns, he will wipe the scum off the earth. Promise 3, I will save Israel. This is also from verse 19. And I will save the lame and gather the outcast. Why is there an emphasis on people who have difficulty walking? Actually, it's not that. The lame is a humble nickname for Israel. I'm not making this up. I found this in the dictionary. It's a nickname for Israel. And it can be traced back to the father of Israel, who is also called Jacob. Now, remember how Jacob wrestled with God? Yeah? Wrestle, not dancing, wrestle with God. And then uh, God put his hip out of socket. And from that day on, he walked with a limp. Yeah? Okay. So here, calling Israel by this nickname carries the idea that God has once again humbled the Israelites or that God will save those who are humble. And we know this interpretation is true by its parallel, the outcast, which refers to those who have been banished into exile, that is Israel. So this promise is about God saving Israel, because, uh, which he did, because a remnant of Israel survived the judgment. Christ has also fulfilled this promise by redeeming with his blood a remnant of humankind from final judgment. This includes the Jews, as well as people from all nations, including us. Promise 2, I will bring you back from exile. Verse 20, at the time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together. That is to say, God will gather the Israelites who have dispersed overseas at the appointed time. And that time is the time of the Persian king Cyrus. During his reign, the Israelite exiles were assembled together under the leadership of Zerubbabel, who brought them back home. Later, we know Ezra and Nehemiah would lead more Israelites back home. So just as the leaders gathered the Israelites to Jerusalem, so also Jesus will gather the saints to himself and bring them to the new Jerusalem. And we're reaching the culmination. Promise number one. 
I will make you a name and a song of praise in all the earth. This is from verse 19 as well as verse 20. This promise was not completely fulfilled in Old Testament times. While the Israelites returned and built their temple and city, I think it's too far-fetched to say that they are famous and adored by the world. It cannot be since they remained subjugated under the Chaldeans and then later were tossed to the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans. They had no name and no national identity. Nevertheless, this promise was fulfilled in Christ. This is where it gets a bit complicated, uh, but try to stay with me. To understand how this is, we need to understand that Jesus is the perfect Israel. This one man became everything that the whole nation failed to become. Remember how Israel is the royal priesthood, the holy nation and the people for God's own possession? That means they were chosen to glorify God. However, Israel was unfaithful and unrighteous. They dishonored God. They failed to become what God called them to be. Jesus, on the other hand, fulfilled the law perfectly. He was blameless and without sin. He glorified God through his death and resurrection. Since Jesus is the descendant of David from the tribe of Judah, we say that he is the perfect Israelite man, even the perfect Israel. So, like a one-man nation. Yeah. So, since Jesus is the descendant and the perfect Israel, since his shameful death on the cross has transformed has been transformed into the glory of God in his resurrection, since his name is worthy of all praise, since songs are sung in his honour all over the world, this promise has been fulfilled in him. But that's not all. Jesus has saved a remnant of humankind who are called by his name, the Christians. And he himself will sing and rejoice over us. As it is written, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. How can this be? That Almighty God would celebrate people like us. It can be. Because Christ has by his blood turned our shame into praise. The spirit of Jesus transforms us from our sinfulness into the glorious image of Christ. Because we call on his name, we have been given his name and share in his praises. Zephaniah's prophecy to Judah is also a prophecy to people of all nations. Regardless of language and race, God promises to those who believe in him, I will deal with your enemies. I will save you from hell. I will bring you back into my presence. You will be a church known by my name, and I love you. And we have confidence that all of God's promises have been fulfilled and will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, 
Therefore, I say to you, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Final thought before we go rejoicing. Recently, I keep hearing people talk about retirement mode. Actually, it's just one person complaining about his colleague. In case you don't know what it means, I found a definition. Yes. Retirement mode only applies to those who haven't retired, okay? Yeah. And as I thought about it, I realized, you know, we have similar expressions for different states of mind. At the start of this sermon, I mentioned the holiday or festive mood in which we slow down at work, take leave, turn our attention to celebrations. There is also vacay mode, vacation mode, where you're not concentrating on your work, or daydreaming about your overseas trip. And then, for the guys you're familiar with, ORD mode. It seems to me that human beings are very good at working themselves into a good mood, even though the actual event hasn't taken place. We can do that when our minds are focused on what we're going to do with all that time after retirement or ORD, when we think about who we're going to invite and celebrate with during the holidays, and where we want to go, what we want to eat and experience when we arrive at our travel destination. For this reason, may I suggest to you that it is not difficult to work ourselves into the mood for joyous singing and rejoicing during worship service, or actually any other day. It is not impossible to experience enthusiasm for worship. Indeed, the Apostle Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. That is easily achieved, even when our lives are not going the way we want. We can be in the mood to rejoice in Jesus Christ when we keep our minds on his return, especially by making his promises personal and specific to ourselves. For example, start planning what we're going to do with all that time in eternity. Think about who we're going to be reunited with in heaven. Daydream about your life in New Jerusalem. Ask for a penthouse by the sea. I don't know. I'm calling this happy state of mind the Christian's Triumphal mode. Before we stand to sing our response song, I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes and as I lead you into triumphal mode. Take this time to think about what the Lord has promised to restore to you in eternal life. Are there family members friends, or pets that you can never see again for one reason or another. God promises to reunite you with them. Is your freedom to enjoy life restricted by physical problems or mental health conditions for which there seems to be no cure? God promises to give you a new and imperishable body which you can use to explore eternity. Has your enemies or your own actions brought you irreversible loss, shame, pain and regrets which you will remember for life? God promises to give you justice 
to wipe away your sins and wash away your tears. So now then, holding on to God's promises in confidence and faith, think about the first thing you want to do when you enter the kingdom of heaven. Tell that to Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are almighty God, that all your promises will come true because you can fulfill them. We thank you, Lord, that in Jesus Christ we are saved and we will come into your kingdom. And each and every one of us here, all our thoughts just now are not wishful thinking. We believe that they can come true because you are with us. We thank you, Lord, for your promises to us, promises of restoration, which gives us life and hope and sustains us in this life as we walk into eternity. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now let us stand and celebrate. Joy of the Lord is my strength. 
Church, let's remain standing as we 